on, on your day, on the Lord's day. Um, we look forward, Father, to your ministry to us in word and sacrament by the power of your spirit. We pray now that you be with us as we again study um, uh, this morning, especially the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> John, can you pull the door shut on the different sides of the sanctuary? be great. Um, just a uh, by way of announcement and reminder, um, hopefully you've seen, I've emailed about this a couple times, but um, we will not have Sunday school um, next Sunday or the following Sunday, the 23rd or 30th, to give our teachers a break um, from their labors and to acknowledge the holiday season. Um, so we will today we'll cover the personal work of Christ, hopefully, and um, we'll pick up again on January 6th um, with the next portion of the Institute. So that's uh, just just by way of announcement, I want you to know that. Um, so typically I've kind of gone through a review each time as I've started our series, um, or each week. Um, but today I'm not going to do that, um, because we have a lot to cover today. Um, today uh, we are covering uh, about four chapters, I believe, of the Institutes. And here Calvin, um, after he has finished talking about the what it means to have knowledge of God, the Scriptures creation, providence, um, the reality of sin, um, the law, which is helpful in terms of um, revealing the reality of sin to humanity. Um, now he's going to enter into um, something new, and he's really going to now begin to show the way of salvation. Um, all the work so far has been um, preparatory in many ways, um, but now he's going to show the way that men can be delivered um, from this place that they find themselves in, um, the reality of their corrupted sin nature, their inability um, to truly know God. He is now going to show how it is that God may truly be known, and that is through the person of his son, um, Jesus Christ. And so there's a lot to cover today, so we're just going to jump right in. Book 2, chapter 12. Calvin entitles it thus. He says, Christ had to become man in order to fulfill the office of mediator. That idea of mediator is really key for Calvin in terms of understanding the work of Christ. Uh, remember, one of Calvin's primary assertions is that humanity um, cannot ascend to God. It cannot have true knowledge of God. Um, it cannot um, comprehend God. And so for Calvin, the great movement of the gospel is God's condescension to us. His condescension in the scriptures, um, certainly in creation, as he gives knowledge of himself in that way. But his primary man manner of revelation is in the mediator, in Christ himself. Christ must mediate God to us. Um, he must bridge the gulf, as Calvin puts it. Only he who was true God and true man could bridge the gulf between God and ourselves. Um, it's it's and nice that we're doing this actually um, in December. This is, uh, Calvin is here going to meditate a great deal on, the, medita on, on the, in, the reality of the incarnation and how um, Christ becoming incarnate was necessary uh, for him to fulfill this role as the mediator. Calvin says, now it was of the greatest importance for us that he who was to be our mediator be both true God and true man. If someone asks why this is necessary, there has been no simple to use the common expression or absolute necessity. Rather, it has stemmed from a heavenly decree on which man's salvation depended. The only way we could be saved is through this mediator, the one who is true God and true man. Our most merciful Father decreed what was best for us. Since our iniquities, like a cloud cast between us and him, 
had completely estranged us from the kingdom of heaven. No man, unless he belonged to God, could serve as the intermediary to restore peace. Um, so there's this great gulf between God and humanity, and how can they be brought together? Only by one, Calvin says, who is both true God and true man. Who might reach to him, that is to God? Any one of Adam's children? No. Like their father, all of them were terrified at the sight of God. One of the angels? They also had need of a head, through whose bond they might cleave firmly, undividedly to their God. What then? The situation would surely have been hopeless, had not the very majesty of God not descended to us, since it was not in our power to ascend to him. Um, W.H. Alden has this wonderful line, so I can quote it from memory. It's, um, he's writing this poem about Advent, and he says, We who are about to die demand a miracle. Nothing that is possible can save us. Um, we who are about to die demand a miracle. Nothing that is possible can save us. He's writing that in the context of the incarnation, um, that, that we, because of our dying, we demand a miracle, we demand something outside of us. There's nothing that is humanly possible can save us, only that something um, that comes from above. It, it, we are hopeless with not the majesty of God to descend to us um, because we cannot ascend to him. Hence, it was necessary for the Son of God to become for us Emmanuel, that is, God with us, and in such a way that his divinity and our human nature might by mutual connection grow together. Otherwise, the nearness would not have been near enough, nor the affinity sufficiently firm for us to hope that God might dwell with us. So great was the disagreement between our uncleanness and God's perfect purity. Um, here we begin to see Calvin... Um, beginning to lay the groundwork for his great doctrine of union with Christ, um, which is rooted actually in the incarnation, that Christ becomes a kind of bridge between God and man. And as we are united to him, we are united to him in such a way that we are also united to the one that he's in union with, his Father and the Spirit. We are brought into union with God himself through Christ. Um, he's, he's God with us in such a way that his divinity and our human nature might by mutual connection grow together, bone of bone, flesh of flesh. And this, this becomes very important for Calvin as he works through his doctrine of salvation, this idea of union with Christ, and how that brings us into communion with the true God. <clears throat> the mediator must be true God and true man, Calvin says. This will become even clearer if we call to mind that what the mediator was to accomplish was no common thing. His task was so to restore us to God's grace as to make the children of men, children of God, of the heirs of Gehenna, the heirs of hell, heirs of the heavenly kingdom. We were, without Christ, heirs of hell. His work was to make us heirs of the heavenly kingdom. Who could have done this had not the self-same self Son of God become the Son of Man, and had not so taken what was ours as to impart what was his to us, and to make what was his by nature, ours by grace? Christ, by his own nature, dwelt in communion with God. Uh, he is the eternally begotten Son. He makes that ours by grace. Therefore, relying on this pledge, we trust that we are sons of God, i.e. not sons of Satan or heirs of Gehenna. For God's natural Son fashioned for himself a body from our body, flesh from our flesh, bones from our bones, that he might be one with us. Here Calvin is, of course, reflecting on the connection between Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5, that the, 
the picture of marriage between a husband and wife is truly a mystery about Christ and the church. That one flesh relationship is to be a picture of what Christ is doing for us in his incarnation and his work. Ungrudgingly, um, he, that is Christ, took our nature upon himself to impart to us what was his, and to become both son of God and son of man in common with us. <clears throat> then Calvin moves on and begins to deal specifically with the problem of sin. Only he who is true God and true man could be obedient in our stead. The second requirement of our reconciliation of God was this, that man who by his disobedience had become lost should by way of remedy counter it with obedience, satisfy God's judgment, and pay the penalties for sin. Accordingly, our Lord came forth as true man and took the person and name of Adam in order to take Adam's place in obeying the Father, to present our flesh as the price of satisfaction to God's righteous judgment, and in the same flesh to pay the penalty that we had deserved. In short, since neither as God alone could he feel death, um, he could not die if he was God, nor as man alone could he overcome it. He coupled human nature with divine, that to atone for sin he might submit the weakness of the one to death, and that wrestling with death by the power of the other nature, that is the divine nature, he might win victory for us. So Calvin's argument is essentially, if he had not been human, he could not die. If he had not been divine, he could not have overcome death. Um, he must be both God and man in order to accomplish his work. Um, those who despoil Christ of either his divinity or his humanity diminish his majesty and glory or obscure his goodness. And this is a, a good reminder to us that when we wrestle with the incarnate Christ, we have to maintain at the same time both realities, his absolutely human nature, his absolutely divine nature, two natures, one person um, at the same time. Um, sometimes we can swing that pole too far to the one way or the other, but we have to hold both at once. Um, not 50% man, 50% God, 100% man, 100% God, um, two natures, um, fully human, fully divine, uh, all brought together and united in one person. Uh, but we should especially espouse what I've just ex explained. Our common nature with Christ is the pledge of our fellowship with the Son of God, and clothed with our flesh he vanquished sin and death together, that the victory and triumph might be ours. In Christ, the one who's taken on our nature, it is though we have died, it is though we have been raised from the dead, it is though we have ascended to heaven. He offered as a sacrifice the flesh he received from us, that he might wipe out our guilt by his act of expiation and appease the Father's righteous wrath. All right, any questions about that before we move on to Christ's further work beyond his incarnation? Good time to meditate on these things, these mysteries, the incarnate God, Christ in the flesh for us. Um, Calvin, I forgot to look this up. I'm not confident, 100% confident, but I think it's likely that Calvin was the first one to really explore, as you think about the work of Christ, um, the way that his work relates to these three offices. Um, these are something that we're pretty familiar with now. Most of us have probably thought about Christ as prophet, Christ as king, Christ as priest priest, prophet, king, the three offices of Christ. Um, it's, it's, it's embodied in our um, catechism. Um, it's something that we you know, have thought about a lot within the context of Reformed theology. But Calvin is really um, unpacking that uh, in detail um, for us and laying the groundwork for our meditation on those things. 
So Calvin, as he works through the person of Christ and work of Christ, really does it in two ways in his institutes. First, he does it through this lens, how Christ is prophet, priest, and king. And then we'll see in a, in a little bit, he also works through um, the relevant parts of the Apostles' Creed, um, how um, Christ um, suffered and died, um, how he rose again, how he ascended to heaven, how he will come as judge on the last day. Um, so Christ, Calvin uses those two methods as his lens to really examine the work of Jesus Christ. So first we'll look at book two, chapter 15. To know the purpose for which Christ was sent by the Father and what he conferred upon us, we must look above all at three things in him, the prophetic office, kingship, and priesthood. So we'll just walk through these one at a time. Uh, I think the really value of, the, of looking at Christ, I'll just say this, through these lens, prophet, priest, and king, is it provides a way to see how the Old Testament um, was really laying a comprehensive foundation for the work of Christ. Uh, prophet, king, and priest, of course, are all Old Testament roles that have always been present of the people of God. And so they provide a really helpful theological lens through which to understand um, Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament, um, how it all points to him. It's not the only way you could talk about the work of Christ, but I think it's a helpful way um, to do so. So first, Calvin focuses on the need of understanding this doctrine, scriptural passages applicable to Christ's prophetic office. Um, he says, therefore, in order that faith may find a firm basis for salvation in Christ and thus rest in him, this principle must be laid down. The office enjoined upon Christ by the Father consists of three parts, for he was given to be prophet, king, and priest. Uh, the meaning of the prophetic office for us is this. Isaiah specifically mentions Christ's prophetic office in these words. The Spirit of the Lord, Jehovah, is upon me, because Jehovah has anointed me to preach to the humble, to bring healing to the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberation to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's good pleasure, etc. And these are the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 61 that Jesus applies to himself in Luke 4 when he reads from the scroll in the synagogue. Um, Calvin says, We see that he, that is Christ, was anointed by the Spirit to be herald and witness of the Father's grace. And for Calvin, this is the fundamental role of the, the prophet, to be the herald and witness of the Father, to speak uh, for God. But, he says, not in the common way, for Christ is distinguished from other teachers with a similar office. He is the greater prophet, the last prophet, we might say. Um, this, however, remains certain. The perfect doctrine that he has brought has made an end to all prophecies. Um, so there is no need for further prophecy after Christ because he is the fulfillment, the, the capstone, um, the unfolding of God's full revelation. The voice that thundered from heaven, this is my beloved son, hear him. Matthew 17, Matthew 3. Um, and that, it's interesting, the father's words about the son um, on the Mount of Transfiguration when he says, this is my son, hear him. This is my son, listen to him. It's interesting, that is basically, um, you know, the, that, that's the only place in the Gospels where we see the Father directing human beings to do something in response to the Son. Um, and I think it's really fascinating. Listen to him, hear him. This is what God the Father is telling us to do in a relationship to God the Son, um, to listen to him. Um, it's something we would be uh, wise to remember. That is the instruction the Father gives us regarding his Son, Jesus Christ. Um, and he says that because he knows that in the Son, the fullness of God is revealed. Um, everything you need to know about the Father is revealed in the Son. Um, thus, the Father exalted him by a singular privilege 
beyond the rank of all others. So Christ is the ultimate prophet, not only the highest, but also the last. Um, I think it's also that Calvin also connects um, Christ's prophetic office not only to speaking for God, but him being God's full revelation. Um, that in Christ we find all that we need to know about the Father. But when Paul says that he was given to us, that is Christ, as our wisdom, and as he says in 1 Corinthians, and in another place he says, in him, that is in Christ, are hid all the treasures of knowledge and understanding, Colossians 2. Paul has a slightly different meaning. That is, outside Christ, there is nothing worth knowing. Think about that for a moment. Outside Christ, Calvin says, there is nothing worth knowing. And here, of course, he means specifically knowing in terms of who God is, the nature of God, the nature of salvation, um, all these things. Outside of Christ, there is nothing worth knowing. And all who by faith perceive what he is like have grasped the whole immensity of heavenly benefits. For this reason, Paul writes in another passage, I've decided to know nothing precious except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Um, this is something, as you think about Calvin and his role in the develop, development of theology, um, Calvin was a radically uh, Christological theologian. Um, he really wanted to move away from this, what he would say um, was, was sort of a philosophical speculation about the, the essence of God, trying somehow to get behind the back of Christ to figure out the hidden God. Um, behind. Calvin says, no, you can't do that. The only way you can know God is by the means that he has revealed himself. Uh, philosophical speculation will not help you. Um, scholastic um, sort of uh, uh, you know, discussion will not lead you there. What you need to do is to realize that God has fully revealed himself in the person of Christ. He is the channel through which all of God flows. Um, if you would know God, you must know Christ. Outside of Christ, there is nothing worth knowing. That's a staggering statement. And yet I do think it fits with the teaching of the apostles um, as they reflected on the person of Jesus and his relationship to the Father. This is, I think, one of the really helpful insights that Calvin brings. Um, Calvin also says, he focuses on Christ's kingly office. Um, he, we have said, he says, that we can perceive the force and usefulness of Christ's kingship only when we recognize it to be spiritual. This is clear enough from the fact that while we must fight through life under the cross, our condition is harsh and wretched. What then would profit us to be gathered under the reign of a heavenly king, unless beyond this earthly life we were certain of enjoying its benefits? For this reason, we ought to know that the happiness promised us in Christ does not consist in outward advantages, such as leading a joyous and peaceful life, having rich possessions, being safe from our harm, and abounding with delights, such as the flesh commonly longs for. No, our happiness belongs to the heavenly life. Um, this is a, something important as you're thinking about Calvin, understanding him. He emphasizes this again and again, the spiritual nature of Christ's kingdom. Um, certainly, Calvin has a lot to say. His fourth book of the Institutes talks a great deal about civil government, and he did believe that the scriptures were supposed to inform the way that human beings govern their societies with one another um, and be the foundation for that. But he also really wanted to emphasize that the, the reality of Christ's kingdom is not earthly in the sense that um, it's, it's not something that we fully experience in this life. Um, he certainly maintained a strong emphasis on the already not yet nature, nature of the kingdom, um, that we look forward, we must look forward to the heavenly life in order to fully grasp um, the reward that is given us. I think that quote is really, that, that bolded there, the second half is really 
really helpful. Um, the happiness promised us in Christ does not consist in outward advantages, leading a joyous and peaceful life, having rich possessions, being safe from all harm, abounding with delights. No, our happiness belongs to the heavenly life. Calvin, and I'm going to talk about this morning in our sermon, I think rightly encourages us to set our minds on heaven, um, set our minds above where Christ is, as Paul says in Colossians 3. He saw this as really essential to understanding the work of Jesus, that if we look to this life um, for our hope, for our happiness, uh, we will be deeply misguided um, because Christ did not promise us those things. And I, I think this is a, a way Calvin can be an important corrective um, to some of the emphases in our modern evangelical world um, today. You think about, I mean, it's easy to laugh at, but, you know, Joel Osteen, your best life now, or whatever, right? That that's what the Christian life is. It's about giving you your best life now. Um, Calvin would disagree. Um, he would say Christianity, um, being a Christian, is about um, submitting to your, your heavenly king so that in this life, um, by your obedience and faith, um, you may be assured of your best life in eternity, right? Your, your life now may not be your best, uh, the best. It almost certainly won't be, he would say. Um, and certainly in his own life, he suffered a great deal. Um, and, and I think Calvin, the way that Calvin addresses this um, gives us the ability to speak into the world as it actually is. Um, the problem, of course, with the sort of Joel Osteen emphasis on you know, earthly blessing and, and riches and, and success is that um, most people don't experience that. Really, no one experiences that, even when they're honest, right? Even the most wealthy, the most powerful, um, don't have their best life now. Um, that, that, and that tension is something that's supposed to create in us longing uh, for something better, something where we will be truly happy. And Calvin really wanted to constantly push the eyes of his readers in that direction uh, toward heaven, where Christ is fully king. Um, he says, thus it is that we may patiently pass through this life with its misery, hungry, cold, contempt, reproaches, and other troubles, content with this one thing, that our king will never leave us destitute, but will provide for our needs until our warfare ended. We are called to triumph. Um, such is the nature of his rule that he shares with us all that he has received from the Father. Now he arms and equips us with his power, adorns us with his beauty and magnificence, enriches us with his wealth. These benefits then give us the most fruitful occasion to glory and also provide us with confidence to struggle fearlessly against the devil, sin, and death. And Calvin would say, how can we struggle against our enemies unless we are assured of our heavenly victory? It is the assurance of our heavenly victory that gives us the power uh, to struggle with faith and without fear against the devil, sin, and death. Uh, finally, clothed with Christ's righteousness, we can violently rise above all the world's reproach and just as he himself freely lavishes his gifts on us, um, so we, may we in return bring forth fruit to his glory. Um, the Father, Calvin says, continuing to talk about the kingly office, has given all power to the Son that he may by the Son's hand govern, nourish, and sustain us, keep us in his grace, and help us. The Father has given all authority to the Son. Thus, while for the short time we wander away from God, Christ stands by in our midst to lead us little by little to a firm union with God. Um, there again, we see that emphasis on Christ's role in uniting us to God himself. Uh, union with Christ is union with God. And surely to say that he sits at the right hand of the Father is equivalent to calling him the Father's deputy, who has in his possession the whole power of God's dominion. For God mediately 
so to speak, wills to rule and protect the church in Christ's person. Um, he goes on and talks about how uh, we are uh, uh, compelled to obey uh, Christ um, because of our regeneration and our faith. Um, Christ fulfills the combined duties of king and pastor for the godly who submit willingly and obediently. On the other hand, we hear that he carries a rod of iron to break them and dash them all in pieces like a potter's vessel. We also hear that he will execute judgment among the Gentiles so that he fills the earth with corpses and strikes down every height that opposes him. We see several examples of this fact today, Calvin says in his life. We see little inbreakings of the judgment of Christ in our world, um, but the full proof will appear at the last judgment. Um, so Christ is king for all the world, all the earth, for all men, um, but it, you're, he's either is king and pastor toward you, um, he is a shepherd king towards you, or is he is a, he is a king in, in, in terms of his judgment. Um, he judges you. Uh, of course, we talked about this um, last week, the judgment of Christ. Um, that's a fundamental part of his office and his nature that, that God the Father has entrusted to him. Um, finally, we'll just speak for a moment about his priestly office. I think it's interesting. This is The priestly office is probably the one that, that modern Christians um, emphasize the most about Christ. Christ as priest. Uh, but Calvin really does think that prophet and king are really fundamental and important. Uh, we need to meditate on what it means for Christ to be prophet, Christ to be king um, as well. The priestly office, reconciliation and intercession. Now we must speak briefly concerning the purpose and use of Christ's priestly office. As a pure and stainless mediator, he is by his holiness to reconcile us to God. The priestly office belongs to Christ alone because by the sacrifice of his death, he blotted out our own guilt and made satisfaction for our sins. For as has been said, we or our prayers have no access to God unless Christ, as our high priest, having washed away our sins, sanctifies us and obtains for us that grace from which the uncleanness of our transgressions and, device, and vices debars us. Um, so Christ is a priest in that he reconciles us um, to God. Um, through his pleading, we obtain favor. Hence arises not only trust in prayer, but also peace for godly consciences, while they safely lean upon the Father's, God's fatherly mercy, and are surely persuaded that whatever has been consecrated through the mediator is pleasing to God. Um, Christ is our everlasting intercessor. He is the one um, who is our mediator even now between us and the Father. And we can be confident of the Father's disposition to us because of Christ as our priest. It's interesting um, that Calvin emphasizes that um, in Christ, um, Christ is not only a priest for us, he also makes us priests in himself. We become priests to God in Christ. Now Christ plays the priestly role not only to render the Father favorable and propitious toward us by an eternal law of reconciliation, but also to receive us as his companions in this great office. And he quotes there from Revelation 1.6, where um, John writes um, about how we've been made priests of God through Christ. For we who are defiled in ourselves, yet are priests in him. We are sinful in ourselves and our own natures, yet through our union with our high priest, we become priests in him. And we offer ourselves and our all to God and freely enter the heavenly sanctuary that the sacrifices of prayers and praise that we bring may be acceptable and sweet-smelling before God. Calvin says this is the meaning of Christ's statement when he prays to the Father in John 17 and says, 
For their sake I sanctify myself. For we, imbued with his holiness, insofar as he has consecrated us to the Father with himself, although we'd be otherwise loathsome to him, please him as pure and clean, and even as holy. I think this is something we would do well to meditate upon, the, the reality that we in Christ have been made holy, that we are truly spotless, um, that we actually please God um, through Jesus Christ, that we even are priests of God. And this, of course, is part of why in our service every um, Sunday at the end of the service we do our tithes and offerings and we then pray a prayer of dedication, not only offering our, our resources, our tithe from, from the, the resources the Lord has entrusted to us, but also we offer our very selves to God. Um, we know that he is pleased with us, with our work, um, with our lives, with everything that we've done in the past week, uh, not because of ourselves, but because we have been united to the priest and to Christ himself. And we offer ourselves to him confidently uh, through Jesus. That's a, a really fundamental part of, of what we're called to do in worship. All right, any questions about any of this before we jump into the last chapter? I know I'm running fast today. Yes, sir, John. Yeah, there's obedience either way. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. All things serve him. Yeah, even the wicked serve his purposes. Absolutely. Yeah. The father's entrusted judgment to the son. Anything else? Is that a hand, John, or are you distraction? Okay. <laughs> Very good. All right, we'll keep rolling then. All right, book two, chapter 16. How Christ has fulfilled the function of redeemer, um, to acquire salvation for us. Here also his death and resurrection are discussed as well as his ascent into heaven. Here Calvin is going to shift from that prophet, priest, king, uh, threefold nature or office of Christ into the way in which um, the creed sort of outlines the life of Jesus and shows um, his role as the redeemer. Um, the redeemer, we've said so far concerning Christ, um, must be referred to this one objective, uh, condemning dead Condemned, dead, and lost in ourselves, we should seek righteousness, liberation, life, and salvation in him. And as we are taught by that well-known saying of Peter, there is no other name under heaven given to men in which we must be saved. Again, for Calvin, this is really fundamental. That it is only in Christ, only in the person of Jesus, that salvation comes. Uh, the name Jesus, which of course means um, Yahweh saves, um, was bestowed upon him not without reason or by choice, but by the decision of men. Or by, sorry, or by the decision of men, but was brought from heaven by an angel, the proclaimer of the supreme decree. Uh, the reason was added, he was sent to save the people from their sins, Matthew 1. Uh, we must note in these words what we have touched upon elsewhere, the office was redeemer, was laid upon him that he might be our savior. <clears throat> Still our redemption would be imperfect if he did not lead us ever onward to the final goal of salvation. Accordingly, the moment we turn away even slightly from Christ, our salvation, which rests firmly in him, gradually vanishes away. 
We must cling to Christ in order to be saved. Um, we must cling to him, and this is why he offers himself to us each week in his means of grace and word and sacrament and prayer, um, so that we might cling to him, we might not fall away from him. This is why worship is so important for the Christian. It's essential, even necessary, um, because it is the means by which Christ is giving himself to us. Uh, we cannot fall away from Christ and expect to be saved. As a result, all those who do not repose in him voluntarily deprive themselves of all grace. Here he quotes from Bernard. He says, Bernard said, the name of Jesus is not only light, but also food. It is also oil, without which all food of the soul is dry. It is salt, without whose seasoning whatever is set before us is insipid. Finally, it is honey in the mouth, melody in the ear, rejoicing in the heart, and at the same time medicine. Every discourse in which his name, the name of Jesus, is not spoken is without savor. This is a radically Christological focus on our lives, and I think it's helpful for us to remember. Um, Calvin now is going to begin to unpack the, the major works of Christ, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. Um, he talks about how the form of Christ's death also embodies a singular mystery. The cross was accursed not only in human opinion, of course, at the time that was the, the, to be crucified was the ultimate cursed death in the Roman Empire, but also by decree of God's law. He quotes from Deuteronomy. Um, cursed is every man who hangs upon the tree. Hence, when Christ is hanged upon the cross, he makes himself subject to the curse. It had to happen in this way in order that the whole curse, which on account of our sins awaited us, or rather lay upon us, might be lifted from us while it was transferred to him. Um, the Son of God, utterly clean of all fault, nevertheless took upon himself the shame and reproach of our iniquities, and in return clothed us with purity. In the cross, Christ bore the curse for us. Yet, we must not understand that he fell under a curse that overwhelmed him. This is really crucial, I think. Sometimes we can act as though Christ was merely a sacrificial victim <clears throat> in, a, in a fundamentally passive way, um, and that he bore the curse, and of course the curse overwhelmed him. It, it drove him down. Um, Calvin would say, no, we must understand, not understand that he fell under a curse that overwhelmed him. Rather, in taking the curse upon himself, he crushed, broke, and scattered its whole force. Um, hence, faith apprehends an acquittal in the condemnation of Christ, a blessing in his curse. Paul, with good reason, therefore, magnificently, magnificently proclaims the triumph that Christ obtained for himself on the cross. Right? The cross, according to Paul, was not just a shameful thing or a defeat. It was a triumph of Jesus Christ. Um, as if the cross, which was full of shame, shame, had been changed into a triumphal chariot. For he says that Christ nailed to the cross the written bond which stood against us and disarmed the principalities and made a public example of them. And this is really important to remember that in Christ, I'm sorry, in the cross, Jesus triumphs over the curse um, for us. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. And Calvin now reflects on the resurrection. Next comes the resurrection from the dead. Without this, what we have said so far would be incomplete. For since only weakness appears in the cross, death, and burial of Christ, faith must leap over all these things to attain its full strength. We have in his death the complete fulfillment of salvation, for through it we are reconciled to God. His righteous judgment is satisfied. The curse is removed, and the penalty is paid in full. Nevertheless, we are said to have been born anew to a living hope, not through his death, but through his resurrection. Um, 
For how by, could he by dying have freed us from death if he himself had succumbed to death? How could he have acquired victory for us if he had failed in the struggle? Therefore, we divide the substance of our salvation between Christ's death and resurrection as follows. Through his death, sin was wiped out and death extinguished. Through his resurrection, righteousness was restored and life raised up. So that thanks to his resurrection, his death manifested its power and efficacy in us. Um, so then let us remember, Calvin says, that whenever mention is made of his death alone, we are to understand at the same time what belongs to his resurrection. And the same applies to the word resurrection. Whenever it is mentioned separately from his death, we are to understand it as including what has to do especially with his death. Um, the resurrection and death of Christ must always go together. We have to understand them as two essential components of the same whole. Um, we can't isolate one from the other. Um, further, Calvin says, as we explained above, the mortification of our flesh, flesh depends on participation in his cross. So we must also understand we obtain a corresponding benefit from his resurrection. The apostle says we are engrafted in the likeness of his death so that we shall, I'm sorry, sorry but by sharing in his resurrection, we might walk in newness of life. With these words, we are not invited only through the example of the risen Christ to strive after the newness of life, but we are taught that we are reborn into righteousness through his power. Now, this is really a good thing for us to see that in Christ's resurrection life, we don't only have an example of righteousness. We also, because of our union again with him, with the risen Christ, are given his power to triumph over sin. Um, sin does not have a hold on us in the same way that it did um, prior to our regeneration, prior to our being brought into union uh, with Jesus. Will we sin? Yes. Um, but we are freed from sin's power. We are, through the resurrected Christ, through his risen life, um, given the ability to triumph over sin in a new way. Uh, again, something I think that sometimes we may not emphasize enough, um, the way that Christ's power gives us triumph over sin. Um, Paul also talks about, um, sorry, Paul, Calvin also talks about how in our resurrection, we like Christ's resurrection, we are uh, given a sort of guarantee of our own resurrection. Um, he says that, um, that we can expect to be raised ourselves because Christ was raised from the dead. And Calvin begins to unpack ascension and um, uh, Christ's ascension and Christ's judgment. Uh, or his coming the day of the last judgment. I'll just read the highlighted parts here and we'll close. Um, first, it understands that the Lord, by his ascent to heaven, opened the way into the heavenly kingdom, which had been closed through Adam. Um, since he entered flesh in our name, in our entered heaven in our flesh as if in our name, uh, we do not await heaven with a bare hope, but in our head already possess it. Um, Christ has ascended to heaven. Um, remember that his human nature did not disappear as he went into heaven. Um, but actually he goes there um, fully human as well as fully divine. And again, through our union with him, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Um, Christ in his ascension appears before the Father's face as our constant advocate and intercessor. He so reconciles the Father's heart to us that by his intercession, he prepares a way and access to it for us to the Father's throne. Um, um, he gives us his spirit um, he adorns the church with his gifts of grace. He keeps us safe by his protection. He restrains the raging enemies of the cross and of our salvation by the strength of his hand and finally holds all power in heaven and on earth. Christ's kingship is exercised um, through his ascension. 
Uh, and then finally, we talked about this a great deal last week in our sermon, so I won't belabor it. Uh, but we also believe that one of Christ's offices is his office as judge. He will come to judge the living and the dead. It is right, therefore, that faith be called to ponder that visible presence of Christ with which he will manifest on the last day. For he will come down from heaven in the same visible form in which he was seen to ascend, and he will appear to all with the ineffable majesty of his kingdom, with the glow of immortality, with the boundless power of divinity, with the guard of angels. From thence we are commanded to await him as our redeemer on that day when he shall separate the lambs from the goats, the elect from the reprobate. No one, living or dead, shall escape his judgment. But for us who are in Christ, it's important to remember that the judge is the redeemer. Hence arises a wonderful consolation that we perceive judgment to be in the hands of him who is already destined to us to share with him the honor of judging. Far indeed is he from mounting his judgment seat to condemn us. Christ doesn't come as our judge to condemn us. How could our most merciful ruler destroy his people? How could the head scatter his own members? Christ is united to us as a head to a body. How could our advocate condemn his clients? No mean assurance this, that we shall be brought before no other judgment seat than that of our Redeemer, to whom we must look for for our salvation. And I would encourage you, if, if um, the sermon last week was overly, I mean, it should be sobering, the last judgment, uh, but it should not be ultimately terrifying for this reason, uh, because our judge is also our redeemer, and he will not condemn us if we are found in him. And so we need to cling to him. We need to cling to Christ. We need to repent of our sin. Uh, we need to put our faith in him, all those things, um, so that we'd be found in him, so that he will be our redeemer because we don't want to face um, his judgment without that protection. Um, Calvin then concludes all this um, section um, by saying, again, coming back to this point he made earlier, um, that, that, all, that we, there's nothing worth knowing outside of Christ, basically. He says, Christ alone in all the clauses of the creed. We see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. Our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. Um, he goes on to say, if we seek any other gifts of the Spirit, they will be found in his anointing, in Christ's anointing. If we seek strength, it lies in his dominion, in Christ's dominion. If purity in his conception, if gentleness, it appears in his birth, the birth of Christ. For by his birth he has made us like us in all respects, that he might learn to feel our pain. If we seek redemption, it lies in Jesus' passion. If acquittal, in his condemnation. If remission of the curse, in his cross. If satisfaction, in his sacrifice. If purification, in his blood. If reconciliation, in his descent into hell. If mortification of the flesh, in his tomb. If newness of life, in his resurrection. If immortality, in the same if inheritance of the heavenly kingdom and his entrance into heaven, if protection, if security, if abundant supply of all his blessings and his kingdom, if untroubled expectation of judgment and the power given him to judge. In short, since rich store of every kind of good abounds in him that is in Christ, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. Let us drink our fill from this fountain, from the fountain of Christ and no other. 
for all of salvation is found in him. All that is worth knowing is found in him. I think that's a wonderful reminder to us and why, again, we need to um, read the scriptures, all the scriptures, in a way that points to Jesus, the Old Testament pointing forward, the epistles reflecting back upon the work of Christ. It's why the gospels need to be at the center of our devotional lives um, and our study, because there the person of Christ is revealed to us. Um, the very, the very God um, is shown um, in the person of Jesus. Any final questions before we wrap up this morning? I'll just say this too. I mean, I, obviously at our church, we practice the, the church year, right? We're in Advent right now. We're looking forward to Christmas, then Epiphany, um, et cetera, um, Easter. Um, and it's important to say that we do this. Um, we don't have to do this. There's no divine command that we do this. Um, we have the freedom to do it, uh, I think. Um, but really the reason we do this is that the church year is, is pattern after life of Jesus. It's a way of again and again, year after year, um, conforming, uh, focusing um, the life of our church on the life of Jesus, on his um, incarnation, on his death, on his resurrection, on his ascension, on his gift of the Spirit. And we do it because of all the things that Calvin just said, um, because all of our salvation is comprehended on him. Um, we, we will not exhaust these topics by studying them again and again, by living them again and again, by experiencing them and singing of them again and again. Um, all of Christ, all of God is, is revealed in Jesus Christ. And that's why, we, that's why we come back to it over and over again. So, something to think about. Yes, sir, James, one question and we'll wrap up. the curse that Christ bore on the cross. Um, well, I think death, separation from God, probably the two fundamental aspects of the curse, um, which, you know, really are one and the same thing. Um, yeah, that he had, he had, by experiencing death, he experienced the curse itself. Um, yeah, that, that's probably how I would define it. All right, let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We do pray again that our hearts would be drawn to him, that he would indeed be the subject of our conversation, of our meditation, of our prayers, um, that we would focus again and again upon him, Father. For we know that in Christ, um, all that we, is worth knowing is found. Even all of our salvation is in him. Um, you have revealed yourself fully in your son. Help us, Father to fix our gaze upon him. We pray it in his name, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.